The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, a podcast focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I've practiced as a geotechnical engineer for over 17 and a half years. In addition to practicing engineering, I enjoy mentoring young engineers and first-generation college students. I've focused on helping to increase the number of pre-college students that are interested in STEAM majors and fields. STEAM is science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, which I may sometimes refer to as the Geopod, I'll be talking to John Grillo, PE, a project executive at Keller about ground improvement, we're talking about deep foundation design, and he's also going to tell us about some of the latest drilling techniques that they've been using. But before we introduce our guests, I want to remind you that the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is indeed a free show. And our sponsors help us to keep it free, so please support them if you can. Now, I'd like to recognize our sponsors for this episode. First, we have Menard Group USA. If you have projects where you're faced with building on soft or loose ground, does it seem like all the good sites are taken and you're always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help you. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally, providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites of problematic soils. Menard's techniques include controlled modulus columns, wood drains, earthquake drains, fibrostone columns, dynamic compaction, rapid impact compaction, and soil mixing. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, processing areas, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, containment structures, and platforms. And in many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard Group USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardgroupusa.com. That's www.menardgroup.com. And now I'd like to recognize our other sponsor, Arrow Aggregates. Arrow Aggregates is the first vertically integrated manufacturer of ultra lightweight foamed glass aggregate in North America made from 100% recycled glass. This sustainable aggregate has bulk densities that are 80 to 90% lower than traditional fill, is free draining and non-reactive, and has a high friction angle. If your project site is challenged by resiliency concerns, raising grades over soft soils, sensitive utilities or structures, or the need to reduce lateral loads, foamed glass aggregate can often accelerate construction, reduce project costs, and offer green credits for lead and envision programs. Visit www.arrowaggregates.com to learn more about this unique construction material. That's www.aeroaggregates.com. 
Now I'd like to formally introduce you to our guest, John R. Grillo, PE. Mr. Grillo is a project executive at Keller North America Incorporated. He's been a member of the Keller team since 2011 and has over 15 years of experience as a geotechnical engineer and specialty contractor. John is currently the ground improvement division manager for the Rockaway office. John has been involved with the design and construction of excavation support, underpinning, micropiles and macropiles, secant pile walls, auger cast piling, ground improvement, and driven piling projects, mostly in the private sector. He's also involved in the research and development of drilling techniques and the procurement of equipment and tooling to help keep Keller as an innovator and ahead of the competition. John is a licensed professional engineer in the state of New York and also in the state of New Jersey. He has a Bachelor of Science degree from Manhattan College and a Master of Engineering degree from Cornell University. Outside of Keller, John is currently the Secretary of the Board of Directors for the ADSC Northeast Chapter and is the past Chairman of the ASCE Geo Institute of the Met Section. Very recently, just a few weeks ago, ENR Engineering News Record New York just listed their 2021 top young professionals. And these 20 under 40 include Mr. John Grillo. And with that, let's jump right into our conversation with John. John, welcome to the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. We're honored to have you. How are you feeling, man? I'm good. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invite and I'm excited to be here. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about daily routine? Like, what does it look like working at Keller as John Grillo? My job at Keller is to promote and build the ground improvement business for our region. And for me, that includes uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, eastern half of Pennsylvania, and Delaware. I'm responsible for um, going out and getting work and managing work and contract negotiation, billing and invoicing, cradle to grave on jobs. Not as much um, uh, being a soldier project manager that I used to be a bit more in a, in a management role now with, with uh, project managers that I work with to uh, get through the jobs. So it sounds like you're seeing from beginning to end, really, in a lot of the back of house, as they would say, it, for the whole division, right? For ground improvement? Yeah. As a ground improvement division manager, you know, when I think of ground improvement or when I think of foundation design, uh, one of the questions, you know, before you just say we're going to have a deep foundation is what can we do with that soft ground? Can we improve it? Or if there are poor site fills, can we improve them? And that's really what your focus is. So, I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about the improvement technologies that are out there? Like, how do you actually improve the ground? There's, there's two main technologies that we use for building foundation and uh, in a lot of like the intermediate structure where it's not too heavy, where you would have to get something that's uh, a deep foundation. Uh, typically, we do a lot of stone columns, aggregate piers, and rigid inclusions. Those are two main techniques. I mean, there's all types of grouting. Grouting you can do for ground improvement as well, but mainly the focus that I work on is typically aggregate piers and rigid inclusions. There's buildings like logistics centers and three to four story wood frame residentials that are going up all over the place. And they're really not too heavy. So when the ground just needs a little bit of help, that's where a ground improvement can save the owners and developers a fair amount of money versus, say, um, driving piles or drilling structural piles. 
Makes sense. And I imagine for slabs as well, like you wouldn't want to pile support a slab if you're sitting on bad ground. Exactly. Right. You have slab on grade over ground improvement for sure. And can you break down those two different types just for the listeners that haven't done any of this before? For a, a structural slab, essentially as if you had a, um, the second floor of a building would be a concrete slab. That would be a structural slab. You know, it would count on any of the support from the soil below it. So you would install a uh, structural deep foundation element at some type of grid similar to a columns in a building to support that slab. If you're using ground improvement and using a slab on grade, you're counting on the ground to provide the support for that slab and to control settlement differential in total. But what you're doing is you're improving the ground to accept those deformation limits. And if you have a lot of different types of ground improvement techniques, how do you know which one's going to be appropriate for a job? Of course, it depends, but what are you looking at to determine which way you'll go? A lot of that uh, starts uh, at the beginning. I always joke around, like, you know, there's a big pile of stuff to do, and where do you begin? It's the beginning. So I kind of take it in a progression, like, what's the least amount of work we can do? And is that, and I don't mean that the least, like, not good enough. I don't want to overscope a job and do too much work. So if we look at something similar to like a compaction technique, like a rapid impact compaction, that would be like the least amount of work I could do on a job. Does that fit the bill? Well, no. Like, well, then the next bucket is, uh, say, aggregate piers. And that works really good, typically up to about 40 feet. I can go deeper. I've gone deeper, but you don't always need to go. So if you can get that 40 foot, up to 40 foot range where you don't have very thick, soft layers, that's going to do an excellent job improving that ground. The next level up from there would be the ridge inclusion, which is going to give you ability to bridge through uh, deeper deposits of softer material. I say before you were focusing in on ground improvement, because I mean, when I knew you, I thought of you as a deep foundation guy. You know, we we're talking about drilled piles and caissons and things that I sort of mini piles. But uh, you made a transition from being, you know, focusing in on deep foundations to more ground improvement. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that transition look like or looks like? I mean, I don't know if you're still in it or you've done, but can you walk us through that a little bit? It's been a wonderful journey so far. That's how I describe it. This August 2020 is two years where they said, hey, like, you just start looking at ground improvement here because like that's a market we're not doing a lot of in this area, but there's market share out there. And, you know, when we do this stuff all over the country, but not as much here, let's grow this business. And I was like, okay, challenge accepted. This is great. And you could do that about 50% of the time, you do your structural foundations and all other stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no problem. I quickly found out that you got to be all in. You can't be half pregnant on this stuff, you know? I quickly found out, like, I had a really hard time juggling it. Like, I had to, like, really focus in and understand the ground improvement because it was a lot different than what I was doing because previously, oh, I'm going to drill a pile through that. I'm going to bypass that material. Now it's like, wait, wait, hold on. Now I got to work with the material. Let me kind of dust off some of those books and draw some more circles and, and go from there. It was humbling. I had to refresh things that I had learned a long time ago and use those techniques that I haven't used in a while to really understand and learn the ground improvement. I really had immersed myself in it to understand and, and get a feel for it. As you know, you're a huge Ralph Peck fan. The dear book about him, about judgment and geotechnical engineering, like, I love judgment. You know I love that, right? So I didn't have a spidey sense for ground improvement. I could look at a micropile and be like, ah, you know, it's full PSI, right? <laughs> you know, your box stresses. I didn't have that. And so I really had to build up a sense of trust from what I was 
calculating or figuring out what it's going to be and understanding and a feel for how to use it and how to use it appropriately. What are you doing as far as uh, confirmation? Like after you have improved the site, are you going back and doing CPTs or borings to improve or? So depending on the project requirements, typical structural support job, a structural foundation that's not dealing with things like liquefaction or things like in that nature, an aggregate peer will do a modules test on, confirm the design stiffness of the peer we had assumed the design. We're doing a, a single element load test on, on a rigid inclusion, similar verification test you would use in a structural pile. And as far as, the, like you mentioned, the, the post CPT or SPT, we've done some work for ground improvement that also doubled as liquefaction mitigation. So doing that, we've gone back and we've pushed cones. We've done them radially from, say, an aggregate pier, you know, away from the center for, you know, how much, check the, the furthest point away and, and is that good? And as you get closer, how much better does it get? And how's your factor safety for liquefaction and post-earthquake settlements in that nature? And as far as on the geotech, on the front end of what you would need in order to bid on a job, Borings, CPTs, specific lab tests. I mean, what's on your wish list that you want to see? Definitely SPTs and CPTs. The SPTs to uh, physically touch it and classify it and get some sieves and some limits. Consolidation data is great. And the CPTs are valuable because it's continuous information. You're getting a whole bunch of data points and you have a whole lot of correlation data you can grab from those points. I get a little um, fuzzy when you're over lower than values. And I feel like you can see more clearly with the CPTs personally on some of those data. Because uh, you, if you really get into the weeds and you want to correct some end values, you're going to keep going down the rabbit hole. And so the CPTs kind of straighten you out a bit, kind of go from there. And I mean, the, the scale of the job will tell you the scale of how much more testing we can typically ask for and get. And do you find yourself doing more work within, say, uncontrolled fill that was present at the site? Or are you more in native material that's just soft? I'd say it's a good mix of both. I did some jobs where there was a concern uh, where there was uh, uncontrolled fill. And so because the sand below it was in great shape. So essentially our aggregate pier system, that job I'm thinking about was 10 feet on center. We did 30 inch diameter piers, 10 feet on center. And at that point, we had proofed out the upper fill layer and was very comfortable with the way it would behave at that point plans behind me were for another job we did in North Jersey. And, and that was actually a liquefiable project. And that was deeper aggregate piers in all native material. We only had like two feet of fill at the top. That was loose sands. You've always tried to be on the cutting edge when it comes to research and development of drilling techniques in particular. But what are some of the latest techniques you've been implementing or hope to implement in the future? And of course, you don't have to give any trade secrets, but there's something that some of our uh, younger listeners, younger geotechnical listeners may not have heard about that you feel comfortable sharing. One technique that I spoke to you about a while ago was when we brought KCFA technology over here. I fought hard to bring that here and use it, and it's been very effective. And That's still a great technology, and in the right spot, it's definitely the right technique. But as of late, I've been doing uh, more work with um, you know, installation of stone columns, do you pre-drill, do you not pre-drill? How much energy does the vibrator have? How big can you build stone? And on the rigid inclusion side, it's, it's been the tooling, you know, heavy R&D focus in the tooling. What if we change the cutter head around? And, you know, what about the grout orifice in the side? How big is that? Is it a bottom discharge, a side discharge? What size drill rods? There's all sorts of different variables that you try and tweak not too much at once so you can see what your control is. How does that work? You go to the shop and you say, I want to change this element right here. And then they 
change it and they test it and they get back to you? Like, how does that process look like? Some of that stuff comes out of necessity sometimes. If you get in a job and the tool comes back, it's really worn and this one side of the tool is really worn. I'm like, oh, maybe turn the tooth out a little bit and see what, you know, see what happens. And all sorts of different Frankenstein tools that you end up making and like, oh, that one worked good. We got to use that one again. Or those paths kind of run parallel with some of the equipment manufacturers that things that they're making. And they're like, hey, I got this new thing. And I'm like, oh, you know, let me put this and this together. And it's exciting. I mean, that's the stuff that kind of excited. The tooling is definitely something that's always like, there's a better way. I know there's a better way. I remember when you started your career, you were in consulting. And when you made that transition over to working for a contract, you, you really used to talk to me a lot about, think about how it goes together, right? It's like, you can't just spec something. You got to think about how it goes together and how it actually works. So that's pretty cool. Like, I think you had to go to drilling school when you started too, right? Some of our um, internal programs were, were very helpful with why we do things a certain way or how we do it, or just even standing next to the driller. It's a very different perspective. Like when I, when I came to work as a contractor and I went and stood next to the driller that was on the same payroll I was on. And I'm like, hey, why do you do this? Why don't you do that? Like things that like, you know, I previously had a different opinion of before. This is why we do this. And, and, and like it made a lot of sense to be able to get that firsthand perspective when, you know, the driller doesn't think you're someone who's trying to bug him, like you work together. We're on the same team, same squad, right? And that reminds me, like soft skills. I mean, a lot of what we learn in school, a lot of it's book smarts, right? It's understanding the calculations, understanding the parameters, understanding the theory behind it. You may get an internship experience or a co-op and you get that practical experience, but soft skills are really important as you start to move up the ladder. And what would you say for how you learn those and what it's meant for you professionally? You know, I've learned some hard lessons. You got to work on your approach and uh, learn how to lead a conversation and to be empathetic. I mean, empathy, I think, is kind of a word I use very often as of late. We even say in a meeting with like a developer or somebody, this developer could be, if you have empathy for what they're going through or like they know that if they have to go to a heavy duty foundation, like the job's not happening, right? I'm empathetic to what you got and, and you know, I'm going to be here for you and, and fulfill that role. Even in general, like I, I always kind of using that empathy, just switching over to the um, even in the office and with different personalities and having empathy is good as well, but also understanding the other party's worldview. Like they have a view that they've built up, you know, in their life with how they got to be where they are. And so there's a view and a perspective that they come to the table with. And so being empathetic of where that may come from or why they may say a certain thing would be very helpful in, in leading or directing a conversation. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you don't, Taking into consideration somebody's motivational values, you could completely say something that kind of spins them in the wrong direction as opposed to encouraging them. So that takes a lot of work. And people think of engineers as not having that skill set. Yeah. I mean, you take that and you get some energy and enthusiasm and, and um, you're going to have a couple of days stumbling, you know, and then all of a sudden it'll click a little bit and it'll get better and better. You got to keep working at it. It doesn't start on day one. Now you think about your team and building your team you know, that relationship between the manager and the staff, I have to imagine that there'd be some challenges, but I have to imagine there are some things that are really rewarding about what that looked like. What can you share with the listeners? The group of people I work with is great. I'm fortunate in my position to have the people that I work with. You guys are a lot of fun. The group that I'm working with right now, they're, they're into it and they have passion and drive and emotion, which works good because I have that stuff too, right? So you know, it's like we build each other up and it's nice. And like, you know, I feel like my job is to kind of raise them up and like give them the confidence to make the decisions they know how to make. 
and like grow as a team because every time there's a new job, we're all learning something new. I've never done the same job twice. Me neither. <laughs> it's the benefit of geotech. Every, every job's a new opportunity to do better than the last one and learn something new, right? There you go. You could be across the street. It's like, oh, it's totally different here than it was over there. Not what I expected. Yeah. That's why they call it practicing geotechnical engineering. Yeah. What advice do you think you could give for uh, geotechs that may be considering a move from, say, like a staff or senior staff level moving into management or, or more leadership roles? What, what advice would you share? Don't be afraid to take a chance. Like a little risk is okay. Calculate your risk, understand what your benefits could be. One thing I learned once was not call it a negative, call it a delta. Get your pluses and your deltas. So understand your pluses and delta, do your analysis and understand which way it can go. I mean, work hard, keep your nose down, learn everything you can. Because I think part of being, you know, getting to that managerial role is um, besides the technical, you have emotional intelligence, technical intelligence. I need to use those both to put that team together and put the right people in the right spots. And I know that throughout your career, you've been pretty active in uh, the professional societies. Anything you could share there as far as how to get more involved or why one would want to be more involved? It's always like a near and dear place to me, the professional societies. I mean, you and I were on a committee together once upon a time. The societies that meant a lot to me, I went to their events. I know that they look for different people to be on their board of directors or their officers of the committee, whatever they call it. And um, when I heard there's an opening coming up, you know, I started talking to that current leadership and saying, hey, I'm interested. And when you kind of work your way in, because forget that I work for Keller. I, I love working for Keller. It's a great company. But I love this industry and I want to see the industry be better also. I think it's a great thing to uh, be part of something besides just your company. You're part of the industry. I think that's really powerful when you think about it because, you know, we were in class and we're learning about what it means to be a geotechnical engineer. And then after you do it for some years, and when you're a part of actually making the industry better, there's something really powerful about having that opportunity, you know? You meet a lot of great people on the road too. I mean, you work with a lot of great people. I work with a lot of great people, but uh, there's a lot more of them out there. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick moment to take a break and we're going to come back just after a moment and we're going to finish this up with John as we have our career factor of safety in segment. Stick around. Welcome back. It's time for our career factor of safety end segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. And we talked about that a little bit today with our guests. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with none other than John Grillo, PE. John, the work that you do involves a lot of risk to both you and your staff, as well as to the community in some sense. How have you built a factor of safety in your career, as well as those that you manage, to give yourselves a factor of safety when working on construction sites as it relates to safety? The factor of safety for safety should be pretty high. Uh, one thing that our safety team says pretty often is, let's go from, I think it's safe, to I know it's safe. And that really stick, stuck with me, because this industry is awesome. It's also dangerous. I think it makes sense to know what you're doing is safe. On the job site, did we, did we secure the load? How are we picking this tool off the truck? Is that safe? 
I think that's totally worth even the extra minute you need just to check the rigging. That's to me a very simple thing that guys take your time. It's really hot today, guys. Drink some water. It's really important to do those things. Makes a lot of sense. It's usually when uh, folks are cutting corners that that, uh, something silly happens. And like you say, it really only takes a moment to just think about it. John, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you for sharing all the great insights that you did with this talk. And thank you for your service to the industry. We really appreciate what you're doing for the engineering community. If somebody wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for listeners to reach you? Uh, Social media or email address? Email is great. Also, uh, LinkedIn is great as well. Those are probably the two best ways to contact me. So my email address is jrgrillo, G-R-I-L-L-O, at keller-na.com. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Derek. Keep up the good work. I hope you enjoyed our episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 10, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the host and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.